Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to the New Testament and turning to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, and this is on page 984 if you're using the church Bibles. And this morning uh, we're concentrating on verses 18 down to verse 23, uh, but we'll read uh, from verse 6 to set the context. Colossians chapter 2 at verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also uh, raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have an indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We have been uh, looking at Paul's letter uh, to the Colossians in our mornings together over the last number of weeks, and we have been mentioning how, especially in this second chapter, Paul has been warning against certain teachings that were creeping up in the church, uh, certain beliefs uh, and practices uh, that were being promoted uh, that Paul was very concerned about. 
You remember that earlier Paul said not to be uh, deceived by these uh, philosophies, not to be taken captive by these uh, human traditions. Uh, he didn't want anyone uh, to be uh, uh, robbed uh, by these uh, false teachings. And we began uh, last week to look at specifically some of the things that were happening in Colossae, some of these uh, teachings and practices that Paul was talking about. And you remember that Paul was uh, tackling uh, uh, practices that were really attached uh, to the Mosaic economy, uh, to the Mosaic covenant, uh, the observance of dietary laws and the observance of uh, days uh, from the Mosaic covenant, uh, the festivals, uh, the new moons and the Sabbaths uh, that Paul refers to. And you remember that Paul uh, challenged that practice, those traditions, and he did so uh, highlighting that these traditions are really a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's a brilliant explanation as to why certain things from the Old Testament don't carry forward. It's because they have been fulfilled in Christ. They were shadows. They were pointing beyond themselves to something, but they weren't the substance. They weren't the reality. And so those dietary laws, uh, not eating certain foods, not touching certain things, they were meant to do something. They demarcated the people of God against the nations. They separated them uh, from the nations. But they were also important because they taught the idea of purity. Who can ascend to the house of God? Only the person with a pure heart and clean hands. And so those dietary laws, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, they were teaching the people that one must be clean in order to come before God. And we highlighted last time how those dietary laws and those festivals are both leading one to the temple. One needed to observe the dietary law in order to have access in the temple. One needed to observe those religious feasts in order to come towards the temple. But Paul was arguing that Jesus is the temple, that in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, that he is the fullness of God in human form. And so what the temple itself was, was pointing forward to Christ. And so Paul is explaining why these dietary laws, why these festivals, the Feast of the New Moon, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of First Fruits, they no longer are binding because they were shadows that were fulfilled when Christ came. And so Paul was explaining why these things are no longer binding. But this morning we want to again come back to looking more broadly at some of these teachings uh, in order to understand uh, both their problem, uh, but also uh, to take away a principle as to how Christians are to live even today. Paul wants to show not only they, that they were dangerous because of what they focused on, but because of what they failed to focus on. And one of the key things that Paul says in these verses here is his denouncement there in verse 18 uh, that... Uh, uh, sorry, in verse 19, that they were not holding fast to the head. 
this is what Paul wants them to understand about this false teaching. And so this morning we want to see that because the fullness of God's grace is found in Jesus, uh, that we are to hold fast to him. <clears throat> we want to think about uh, these verses in two thoughts. We want to think about Paul's directive. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then secondly, we want to think about Paul's defense. Uh, what is he directing the church to do here? And then what does he give them uh, to support them in that endeavor? What he is giving them as a directive is not to let them be disqualified. But then Paul also gives them the rationale for why they shouldn't allow themselves to be disqualified. So first we want to think about what is this directive that he is giving them. He says there in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Uh, if you read the New King James, uh, then it'll be uh, let no one cheat you or let no one rob you of your prize. And those, those two ideas of being disqualified and of being deprived of something are really describing two sides of the same coin. Uh, it, they're both true. And Paul is uh, meaning both. Uh, to be disqualified of something would mean that you are deprived of the prize or uh, that a victor would get in the games. Um, to be disqualified would mean that you are no longer uh, rewarded at the end. Uh, if you think of a baseball game, if you went to watch a baseball game and you were sitting in the stands and the batter hits the ball down the third base line, high up in the air, and you watch the ball sail out of the field, it goes out of the park. You watch that hit, uh, but then to your left, you see and hear one of the fans shout out, foul ball. What is that fan doing? The fan is making a judgment. They are wanting to deprive the hitter of the hit. They are wanting to, to disqualify that hit. They are saying it shouldn't count. It was a foul ball. Uh, it, it shouldn't be a run scored for that team. It, it, it shouldn't be rewarded to them. And if you were sitting there in the, in the stands watching the game, you would think to yourself, let the umpires call the game. That's what the umpires are there for. They call fair ball and foul ball. They call balls and strikes. It's not the fans that get to decide <clears throat> if uh, something counts or not. And if we take that analogy and we carry it forward, Paul here is telling the church, don't let, don't let others disqualify you. Don't let others deprive you of your standing before God. Don't let others deprive you of the assurance of your acceptance with God on the basis of their own standards, of their own traditions, of their own commandments. And so Paul has a, a very pastoral aim here because he's not just trying to say, these people are off, off center. These people have gone off the course. But Paul recognizes that these false teachers have an influence. There's a reason why he has to tell the church not uh, to be wary of these teachings, not to allow someone to be deceived, uh, not to uh, buy into these false uh, philosophies. It's because there is a, an attraction to it. Uh, 
where they can be hoodwinked and they could go down that path with them. And so Paul here is trying to protect the church uh, from listening in uh, to these false teachers. As mentioned, Paul has already warned of the danger of being taken captive by their philosophies, by their human traditions. But notice back in verse 8, he doesn't just say that they're different. In verse 8, he said they are actually opposed to Christ. These are two different answers to the question, how can I be made right with God? How can I have access into God's presence? How can I know I have a right standing with God? And you would have Paul's answer, the scripture's answer, that it's in and through the Lord Jesus Christ that we come to have access in God's presence. But then you would have these false teachers that are giving a very different presentation as to how you know God's favor, how you come into God's presence. And they, uh, as a result, were promoting something very different. And you notice in these verses here uh, that they were disqualifying others, we could say, on two grounds. By that, they're disqualifying is, is that they're really saying, you don't have a place. You don't really belong. Or to really think that you are accepted with God, these things should be realized in your life. And so they are actually highlighting two things in these verses, two further characteristics of this false teaching. One of them, uh, we could say, is the word asceticism. Uh, and the second one is the worship of angels. In verse 18 there, uh, Paul mentions asceticism. Uh, literally, the word is humble uh, or self-abasement. Uh, they are people who wish to abase themselves, which might sound good. But you'll notice that as you read carefully these verses, uh, the language that Paul uses in verse 18 is also matched down in verse 23. He will speak about asceticism. He will speak about uh, the worship of angels and going on detail about their visions. And then in verse 23, he says that this self-made religion is characterized by its asceticism and its severity to the body. So this this self-abasement is a self-abasement of a particular kind. It is severe treatment against the body. Um, what is asceticism? Uh, it is a life of self-denial. Uh, it is uh, a life of discipline. Uh, it is oftentimes characterized by fasting uh, and uh, to the neglect uh, of the body. Um, it generally... Uh, uh, a lack of concern uh, for the body. Uh, now, having said that, we know that the Bible does stress the importance of discipline. There is a place for discipline in the way that a Christian conducts themselves. The Apostle Paul makes that point. He says, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Uh, so discipline is a good thing. Uh, uh, it reflects structure and order to life. <clears throat> We know that there are times for fasting in the Christian's life. Uh, there are occasions when it is good for us to deprive ourselves of our uh, common sustenance in order to devote ourselves to God in prayer, to devote ourselves to seeking God uh, in his will. So it's not as though Paul is attacking discipline 
or fasting in and of itself. But it is a certain kind of discipline or a certain kind of self-abasement that Paul is really concerned about here. And you notice that it is, uh, as we are piecing together this theology of the false teachers, that it is a discipline with, a, with a, an end in mind. It's a means to an end. And their, their fasting, their severe treatment of the body is ultimately to attain to a certain kind of an experience. You notice that because he goes on in verse 18 and he says they were wishing on self-abasement or insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels and going on in detail about uh, visions. They're going on in detail about these experiences that they have allegedly have. We know that it was a common thought in many circles for people that to prepare oneself for a heavenly vision one would begin by severe treatment of the body. That it was in a form of self-denial or self-abasement that one could prepare for a heavenly encounter or to have a heavenly revelation. And so these people here were doing this as a means to have a heavenly or a, uh, a heavenly revelation or a heavenly uh, vision. So it's a means to an end as a way of accessing uh, the presence of God. The promotion of this uh, form of self-discipline was also in order, uh, uh, or also involved, uh, it says there, the worship of angels. Uh, that might sound like a surprising characteristic uh, to hear of developed, especially uh, so early in uh, the first century. And some commentators have uh, wrestled with the best way of translating that. It can be translated as the worship of angels, uh, but one could make a case it could also be translated the worship by angels. Uh, meaning by that, these people wanted to have a, an experience of heaven, a vision of heaven, uh, and to join in or to worship God through the angels. Uh, but we also have to realize that the infatuation with angels is something that has been a long-standing uh, issue uh, down through the centuries. There is evidence that even in this region in the first century, there was angel worship. Uh, we do realize in the scriptures there is a, an explicit repudiation of angel worship. You think of the book of Revelation, multiple times John is told he must not bow down and worship angels. You think about how one of the themes of Colossians is the supremacy of Christ over spiritual uh, beings. And the fact that the most natural way to translate this is the worship of angels themselves. So however we understand this description, these people were desiring to have a vision of heaven that incorporated and that was fixated on the angels. The angels were central in this heavenly experience. And so as a result, there becomes this aura in the church where some people are living with such a, a rigid, disciplined lifestyle. They're observing these dietary laws. They are not touching certain things. They're not handling other things. They're not eating certain foods. 
They are ultimately doing that in order to have certain visions. And all the while, Paul says they are becoming puffed up with their sensuous mind. But they're judging other people on the standard of have they abided by these practices and have they had these experiences. We're living 2,000 years later and yet we can still see those two principles emerge where people can judge one another on the basis of whether or not they maintain certain human traditions. These traditions are what make us acceptable before God and on the basis of whether or not they have certain kinds of experiences. And Paul here is highlighting not to allow the church to be deprived of their comfort, not to be deprived of their joy, not to be deprived of their standing before God on the basis of what these people are saying, which is rooted in their own traditions. So he, he is simply wanting to call attention to how we can be prone to judge things by appearances. When we see someone acting in a very zealous way, if we saw someone who was depriving themselves and fasting, if we see someone who is associating with the down and the out, if we see someone who is obviously going through discomforting things, we might be impressed and say, this person is for real. This person's the real deal in what they're doing. They're all in. If we see someone who is going on about the experiences that they've had, they've had certain visions, people can be captivated by that and say, well, I've never had a vision like that person's had a vision. They must be really close with God because that's what it must be to be close with God. And then a person can start to work backwards and say, I never had a vision like that. I must not be close with God. I don't, I don't follow all of these traditions about food laws. Maybe, maybe God isn't as pleased with me because I don't follow those food laws. And so they, they work backwards where they have this tier system and they think those people are closer with God because they're doing those traditions, because they're having those alleged experiences. But does that mean I'm not part of God's people? that I don't have a place in God's standing because I don't have those myself. Then we begin to understand why Paul is saying, let no one disqualify you on the basis of insisting on these forms of self-abasement that are based on human traditions. Don't let someone disqualify you who's going on about the visions that they've had. Why? Because Paul says those things aren't central. Those are things that you hear. Those are things that you see. But the substance is Christ. So Paul here is, he's doing something very pastoral. He's giving the ammunition to protect the church from being pulled by the claims of different people that creep up into the church, people that want to boast about certain things. And Paul is saying, this is what is to be central. It is 
Christ. And anything that would lure you away from that is man-made. It is of a different faith. And so the church is to think about these things in that light. So he gives them the directive, let no one disqualify you. The grounds upon which people were trying to disqualify them was their rigid form of self-abasement and their worship of angels. They were captivated uh, with uh, the angels. And you can imagine why this would be. Uh, angels as mediators to protect them from the harms and the evils of this world. Angels that will come to their aid as their guardians. Uh, they could implore the angels. And Paul just simply comes back and says, it's not important what they claim to have seen. It's not important about looking to a particular angel. What is key is Christ. And so he gives them uh, a defense as well in these verses. Uh, and he is, as he's uh, attacking uh, this false teaching, he's actually building up uh, an affordable uh, defense system. We want to see three things that he gives them in order to defend uh, that notion. How do I avoid letting myself feel disqualified? Or how do I avoid being subject to the judgments of other people's standards? And Paul says really three things. One, we are to not only recognize what is important, but he says we are to live with reference to Christ. We are to have that relation with Christ. And we're to contemplate what the removal of Christ does. First, if you think about with reference to Christ. Again, going back to what he says, uh, let no one disqualify you insisting on these things, on asceticism, the worship of angel, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Literally there, what it's saying is puffed up by his fleshly mind. Their mindset is still operating as an unregenerate person. That what they're boasting about is still the things of this world. It is still self-centered. It is still shaped by them, their own intuitions. And Paul here says not only are they off course, but they're off course out of a corrupt character. They're puffed up with pride. But it's not just that they're puffed up with pride. His point is, is that they're not holding fast to the head. You think about how often we are told about holding fast to something. You young people, when you cross the street, you might be told, now hold hands. Why are you told to hold hands? So that when you cross the street, no one wavers or wanders off into a dangerous situation where cars are going by. You hold fast so that everyone stays protected. When we go uh, to uh, important meetings, we might be given papers. And my, someone might say, now you hold on to these papers because you're going to need the information in these papers. So don't discard them. You hold fast to them. Paul here is denouncing these false teachers because what they're holding on to, their visions, their traditions, their practices, they're holding on to many things, like the Pharisees who held on to their traditions. They're not holding fast to Christ. They're not holding firmly to Christ. They're fixated on something else. And so as a result, Paul is saying, don't let someone disqualify you on the basis of something other than Christ. 
Christ is the one who saves, and Christ, our relationship with Christ, is the way upon which we are judged. Notice the language that he used, not holding fast to the head. Throughout Colossians, Paul has been using this language of headship to refer to Jesus. Jesus is the head of the body, that is the church. Christ is described as the head and the ruler of all authority. So he is, he is over all things. And it is under the head that we grow and have life. But these people have severed themselves because of their fixation on their, their practices and their traditions. They have erred, uh, therefore, in not holding to Christ, uh, but holding and clinging to something else. Christ was not central to their understanding of how they came into having access into the heavenly temple. Again, how do they come to have access? They would say, we have access through our visions. That when we have these visions of God, it's as if we're being lifted up into heaven and that we're being with the angels. And it's, and it's through our, our observance of these practices that we have these encounters. And they're, they're, they're working around Christ, but there's nothing of Christ in what they're saying. There's lots of religious talk, but the substance is missing in Christ. Christ was not central in their understanding of their protection uh, from the evil forces in the world. Yes, there are evil forces. Yes, there are angels. But there's no connection there that Christ is the head of all rule. And therefore, our protection is found in Christ. That is how we can know we're safe. Not by looking elsewhere or looking to other mediators. Instead, these false teachers were boasting in their own experiences. Jesus himself says, no one comes unto the Father except through the Son. It is by holding on to the Son that as a person is accepted in his sight. It is by coming to believe in the Lord Jesus. So, Paul says, don't be disqualified on the basis of what these people are saying. His defense is saying, these people are not holding fast to Christ. Their judgment is not binding. It's like listening to a fan in the stands rather than recognizing the umpire as the one who makes the call. And you'll notice that when you get to chapter 3, Paul will speak about Jesus as the judge. It is Christ's judgment that matters. So he tells them, if they're not living with reference to Christ, their judgment isn't binding. But his second defense against being disqualified or allowing themselves to feel disqualified, I don't have a place before God, is knowing their own relationship with Christ. Notice there in verse 20, he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do you see the logic there? Throughout this chapter, he's been arguing about this idea of union with Christ. That living your life with reference to your understanding of who Jesus is. That everything about you now flows out from your understanding of Christ. And that as I understand more of Jesus, the more I can make sense of my own life because I'm connected to Christ. That I, have a, I derive benefits from Christ. And so Paul even used the language of death and resurrection. You have been buried in baptism, but God has made you alive. So now, Paul says, if you with Christ have died, why would you submit? His logic there is the force of sins. 
since you have died to the elemental spirits, why would you join up with them again? We can be even more technical when he says you have died to the elemental spirits. He doesn't just simply say there's been a separation. He says you have died from the elemental spirits. There's a, a freedom from them. Those elemental spirits is a, probably a way of describing everything that characterized the old creation and its fallenness, both physically and spiritually. That Paul is saying this old order of things has been cut off. And so if with Christ you have come to be part of the new creation, don't go back and live as if Christ hasn't come. Because you're united with Christ and your standing before God is based on Christ. So Paul highlights this language. Why would you submit to do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Again, a way of referring to the old uh, covenant ceremonies. If you were in the old covenant, you couldn't go to the temple if you touched a dead person. You weren't to go into the temple if you were unclean yourself. But what Paul is reiterating is, is that if you're in Christ, if you have trusted in Jesus, you are clean. So why would you ret return to these ceremonies when the reality has been accomplished? Live out your union with Christ. Apply that understanding to your situation. So he's giving them the defense here to answer their accusers who say, you don't know what it is to have an experience of God. You don't know what it's like to have the fullness of God. And Paul is saying, actually, he's already given us the answer. In him is the fullness of God. And if I have Christ, then I have the fullness of God's grace. I don't need to look elsewhere for my security. I don't need to look elsewhere for a higher experience. So Paul here uh, tells them not only about the false teachers standing, they're not holding fast to Christ, but he reminds them of their own standing. Since you have died, uh, since you have been united with Christ, why would you live as if Christ has not come? Thirdly, he gives them another defense. And that is an understanding of this false teaching. Again, in verse 23, he says, They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They're off course. They're taking their pattern from human traditions, human concepts, human commandments. But it's more than that. Paul's words here are really an echo of what we were reading in Isaiah. Do you remember what Isaiah was saying in his own time? He was explaining a, a message of judgment on the people. Blind yourselves and be blind. A people who had degenerated in their worship. Isaiah said in Isaiah 29, this people draw near uh, with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Their fear is a commandment taught by men. In Isaiah's day, the attack, the criticism of God was is that in their worship, their worship had degenerated so much that it was actually idolatry. What is idolatry? 
Idolatry is anything that we ascribe worth to in the place of God. Anything that we put our security in rather than God. Anything that we put our fulfillment in other than God. These people were going through the motions of worship, but they were actually worshiping their own worship. They were committing idolatry. And now as Paul is writing about this false teaching in Colossae, he says what they're doing amounts to human precepts. It amounts to the tradition of men, a, a commandment taught by men. It amounts to idolatry because it's not centered on God. It's not centered on the person of Jesus. And ultimately, that is the problem with it. They're looking elsewhere for their acceptance, their way of access to God. They're looking elsewhere for their sense of fulfillment. And so Paul writes, there is an, an appearance of wisdom, but it is of no value. While they may be outwardly zealous, it is at the end of the day, self-made religion. Paul's final point, though, uh, is also key. He says it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. No value in filling the flesh. Uh, the flesh here is not referring to our physical bodies, but again to that unregenerate state Earlier, Paul talked about how these teachers would go on about their visions being puffed up by their minds of the flesh. But it seems like it's a final criticism of Paul here to say, these people who are bent on their experiences of finding fulfillment in those experiences will never be fulfilled. Those people who are bent on their practices and finding fulfillment in their practices will never be satisfied. There is no assurance. There is no peace because it's without Christ. And so when Paul says, let no one disqualify you on the basis of these things, he explains why not. They're saying it from a vantage point where they're not holding fast to Christ. He says it on the basis that you have been united with Christ, who is the fulfillment of these shadows. But he says it as well because without Christ, there is no satisfaction. Those practices, those experiences will leave you longing for more that only Christ can satisfy. And so Paul here gives them the answer as to why it is that they should rest in Christ. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is, as Hebrews says, the mediator of the new covenant. And as Hebrews goes on to say, it is through Jesus Christ that we have access into the heavenly Jerusalem. There is a way of access into the temple of God. It's in Jesus the embodiment of God's presence. It's in Jesus that we find how I can know I have a right standing with God. It's in Jesus that I can know God's favor towards me. It's not in an experience or a vision that I've had. It's not in all the disciplines that I have conducted. It's by resting in Jesus and knowing that he is sufficient. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray as we think about your word that we would know what it is that we are holding fast to. 
Help us, Lord, not to be uh, enticed by outward appearances, but help us, Lord, uh, to think all things in light of your truth. Lord, we pray that we would apply uh, the, the uh, descriptions of, uh, uh, of the outworking of your grace in our own situation, and that we would be able to know not only the truth of Jesus, uh, but to enjoy uh, the fruits of communion with him. Go before us now and uh, bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.